You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP and today I'm interviewing Professor Angus Dawson who's Professor of Bioethics and Director of Sydney Health Ethics at the University of Sydney. Welcome Angus. Hi. So Angus, you've published an excellent and very plain speaking piece of work, an ethics framework for making resource allocation decisions within clinical care responding to COVID-19. I'd like to talk to you a bit about the paper later, but perhaps if I can start a bit more broadly, what are the ethical issues that arise in a pandemic? I think that's an excellent question. And one of the things that uh, arises because we're living in a pandemic is that many more people will be aware of this than has been the case in the past. So I think we can split things roughly into three different topic areas. So there are issues relating to some of the public health measures, such as the restrictions on movement or the following up of individuals, so-called contact tracing and so on. There are issues related to the research that we might want to conduct. So we might reprioritize resources into particular areas of research. So I think many labs are now um, primarily focused on COVID-related research in many universities, for example. And some of that relates to testing. Some of it relates to thinking about different treatments, and some of it relates to vaccine development. And then the third broad area are issues to do with resource allocation. And many of those are really potentially uh, tragic decisions that need to be made in response to real kind of scarcity at at the coalface. Those are the ones, I guess, that clinicians really worry about. And in your paper, you use the example of access to ICU beds and ventilators. And I guess that's the most sort of concrete one. You developed a framework around this. Can you just run us through that briefly? Yeah, so the the framework basically consists of a number of different steps. And it's it's deliberately held to be a framework. And the thought there is that we're taking the metaphor of framing decision-making seriously. So just like you have a frame around a picture, this provides some kind of structuring for institutions or state authorities or individual teams Primarily, we're thinking here about hospitals. I guess we can talk about primary care a little bit later. But the thought is that a framework is there to sort of say, these are the kinds of things that you need to think about. And the way that we structured our paper is in a series of questions and then giving answers to those questions. And the thought is that many busy people, they haven't got time to read a lot of background literature, so we have no references whatsoever in our paper, for example. We're trying to distill what the issues are using our experience, and the the whole aim is to try and sort of help people with a set of practical issues. Mm. And essentially what we try and do is to think, okay, what are the kind of issues that we can take into account in terms of the processes for setting up this kind of difficult resource allocation decision. So who's going to do that? How are they going to do that in terms of the the process that that they have for that? We're encouraging these 
kinds of discussions to be held well in advance of the actual situation of having to implement them. And then it comes down to um, how do we then think about the, the more kind of ethics or value issues. And we take a particular view that once we have reached the tipping point that has moved us from everyday routine care into a sort of emergency situation with where the resource that we're talking about, whatever it is, is, is limited, then we need to think about how we allocate that resource. And what we argue for is really focusing on getting the best value out of that uh, resource that we possibly can. So there's a kind of sort of obligation of efficient use of resources particularly when they are um, scarce. And then we move into a set of issues about what that might actually look like. I mean, there's been lots of discussion about different ways of actually using tools to allocate different weights to particular patients, depending upon their sort of physiological condition and the expectations that we might have for their survival and their ability in the future to live a a good and flourishing life. And then we have a discussion about different kinds of what in the jargon are called tiebreakers about if you can't decide between particular individuals, they belong to a group, then how do you do the allocation? And this really depends upon really how constrained the resource is that we're actually talking about. Mm. Some very thorny decisions there. And I like the way you break it down into very logical progression, because I can imagine if this does come to pass, it's going to be chaos, uh, particularly at the coalface. I like the concept of a tipping point. So it's where the resource, whatever you're talking about, becomes scarce such that you can't apply the usual rules you do have to go to resource allocation framework once that's reached and thank goodness we haven't reached that in Australia but then once that's reached as you mentioned you've got that concept of well how can we get the most value for it um, for that particular resource but then when all things being equal you come to these tiebreakers and I guess those are the really thorny issues In your paper, you talk about a couple of examples, and one of them is clinicians who can potentially go back and and effectively be a resource themselves in, in dealing with the pandemic. That could be accused by people outside as looking after your own. What was your thinking in and around that particular tiebreaker consideration? Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. And Again, going back to the, the metaphor of framing, the idea is that we're trying to provide some help and then the, the burden of the final structure of what policy is actually going to be within particular institutions or within particular clinical teams, it's basically over to others to decide what policy they want to adopt and then be able to defend it. Mm. But we think that healthcare providers, clinicians in general, particularly those that have the ability to respond to helping out in relation to coronavirus, they ought to be prioritised in these kinds of cases. I mean, it's really interesting to think there are a number of different reasons why we might do this. So with some of the other groups, it might be that there is only one or maybe two reasons. But with healthcare workers, I think there are a number of 
reasons. So the first one is really thinking about reciprocity. So thinking about people who we know that one of the main occupational groups that is performing the riskiest kind of work are people that have contact with patients who are potentially infectious. So to compensate for the fact that we all want healthcare workers to respond at the point of need, in a kind of compensation for that, we might actually think about a reciprocal obligation to ensure that we prioritize because most of the cases are going to come through occupational exposure. Healthcare professionals are doing what we want them to do as a society. They're undertaking that additional risk. So this is a kind of additional reason why we we might respond. And then the second really good reason is we all benefit when we have a good healthcare system. And part of that healthcare system are the, the professionals who are responding when we need them to. And the thought is that it's to everybody's benefit as a society if we have the experienced healthcare professionals who perhaps get sick as a result of infection being prioritized and returned essentially to the front line as soon as possible. So I'm using, again, a little bit of military metaphors there, and sometimes people talk in terms of triage and so on, And uh, in military ethics, there's this idea that you prioritize those that you can return to the front line above others. And there might be a similar kind of analogy here for thinking about those people that can benefit all of us should receive that kind of um, extra priority. Thank you. As somebody's put their hand up for a respiratory clinic, that's very good to hear. The other two groups that I was interested in were caregivers and First Nation communities. So caregivers, I guess you can sort of understand. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, so so the, the, the kind of primary um, idea behind the that we're trying to encourage with our framework is is this thought about best value so the best value from a resource and the thought is that one of the arguments that you could use for prioritizing caregivers is that it's not just them as an individual that benefits it's the other individuals who are being cared for so they could be children or elderly relatives for example and again there's an analogy there with the the healthcare workers just as the benefit from treating a healthcare worker is to society in general, or many other individuals that are part of society, not just to that healthcare individual themselves. Here we can think about benefit as extending out. So it's a really efficient use of resources, potentially if we have other kinds of beneficiaries from the intervention that we have. And with First Nations communities, the thought here is that Again, there are a number of reasons why we might choose to prioritize these groups. And I guess it's something which is less usual to see in these documents, at least partly because many of them are produced in a North American or a European context where thinking about First Nations communities is not generally at the forefront of their approach. But this is based upon thinking related to certainly my experience and knowledge of the literature from previous outbreaks such as um, the flu outbreak in 2009 and we know 
that whenever there is an infectious disease outbreak in an Australian context, it will always be First Nation communities that do the worst. So because of the poorer outcomes for these groups, we might choose then to prioritize them in different ways. I mean, in the future, hopefully, if a vaccine becomes available, it might be that, again, they are offered the opportunity as a priority, as a, as a group who are potentially more vulnerable. And some of this relates, of course, to lack of access to healthcare in the same way that you might get in other parts of, of the country. And there's also an idea about, perhaps this is the most controversial, but thinking about some kind of compensation for past injustice. So the kinds of situation that we face now, of course, is the result of previous decisions and the kind of inequalities that exist have a cause in those uh, decisions. So this might be seen as a kind of compensation for some of those issues in the past. Mm, almost like the reciprocity that we're seeing with the analogy with clinicians. Right. So if we turn now to primary care, what specific ethical issues do you see primary care physicians like GPs confronting? So I think it's interesting to think that most of the discussion so far, say in, in relation to resource allocation, has focused on hospitals. And I think it's important to think about what resource allocation issues might occur within primary care and how we might respond to them. There are issues related to the restrictions. So I think it's becoming more difficult for interactions between GPs, for example, and, and patients. I think patients reluctance to actually prioritize themselves and see that they have a problem and kind of reach out. There's a sense in which coronavirus has taken over the whole of the healthcare system, and that is going to have consequences for people with other kinds of health conditions. So it is very often going to be GPs at the forefront within primary care within communities who are the ones who are going to have to face the consequences of this. So I think, again, going back to my kind of three issues related to the, the ethics of um, pandemics, I think certainly issues relating to restrictions and some of the unforeseen consequences of that, but there are also these resource allocation issues. Yeah, I guess a lot of what you're talking about there relates to regular general practice and access to regular general practice, but during a pandemic, I suspect that the ethical issues are not going to be as acute in primary care as they are in the hospital system, uh, unless there's something like restricted access to medications or limited number of vaccines or things like that. But look, I, I think general practice is well set to be able to deal with a lot of this? I think some of this relates, again, back to thinking about the, uh, the very um, well-set-up system in relation to health that there is in Australia. So it might be that it looks as though, at the moment anyway, that we're going to be lucky that we're not going to face these really traumatic decisions in terms of the demand within hospitals for resources. And I think in a primary care setting, there are, there are some issues that some other countries are facing. So, for example, routine vaccination schedules have been interrupted, in some cases cancelled. That is going to have a consequence 
So we know from previous outbreaks, such as Ebola in West Africa, that routine vaccination ended, and then you get outbreaks of, of vaccine-preventable diseases as a result of that, because it's it's quite difficult in a country where perhaps there isn't the infrastructure and really and community-embedded healthcare system to, to respond and sort of follow up when you get those kinds of gaps. But I think, again, we need to realise that this is a result of the choices that we've made in the past to set up the Australian healthcare system in the way that it currently is. And we need to ensure that that's uh, preserved because of these um, potential benefits. So the resilience of the healthcare system is really important. Absolutely. Look, thanks very much, Angus. I really appreciate your time for today. And I look forward to seeing more of your papers. I found them refreshingly plain speaking. And I look forward to podcasting again in the future. Great. Well, thanks a lot. 